Welcome to the latest episode of Silver Screen Superheroes, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we continue our look at the X-Men franchise with X-Men Origins Wolverine. This one was originally released on May 1st, 2009, and it's the first X-Men film to officially focus on Wolverine as the central character, although he's already had more screen time than any of the other characters up to this point. Now, with this one they turn back the clock to tell his origin. Which is kind of interesting, considering when the X-Men films first came out, his origins hadn't been fully revealed in the comics. We knew about his time since Weapon X, when his memories got wiped out, but there was nothing that we knew about what happened to his life before then. We didn't know how old he really was, we didn't know if he was born in Canada, or was just originally found there, as part of the Weapon X project. There was a lot we didn't know about his history. But when the first X-Men film came out and hit with such gangbusters, the editorial departments at Marvel decided, you know what, we had better tell Wolverine's origin before the movies do. So they produced a six-issue miniseries titled Origin, which was actually one of the main titles that brought me back into collecting comics after being away from it for several years during the 90s. And it was that miniseries that inspired the opening sequence here, which establishes that Wolverine is from Canada, specifically the province of Alberta, and his real name is James Hallett, and, you know, that he was raised in very much an upper-class portion of society, although his biological father and his mother's husband were two different people. From there, we get a montage that skips through a massive portion of Wolverine's life. So this really cuts through his, in this case, friendship with Victor Creed, aka Sabretooth, as they were growing up. Turns out that they had the same biological father, but different mothers, so they're really half-brothers, and forwards through their lives fighting side by side in multiple wars and ends after Vietnam and, you know, leading into Wolverine's association with the Weapon X project. So Wolverine and Sabretooth were recruited by a government agency led by William Stryker, who we discussed for X-Men 2, Mutants United, to do some special jobs and special tasks. And Wolverine finds that they're going too far. Instead of actually being able to help out the country and do good in the military by, you know, wiping out the elements or, you know, restraining the elements that need to be restrained, they end up taking it way too far and going through villages where people have never chosen to fight back and never wanted to fight back, but are still being killed by their special unit to further the specific goals of William Stryker. Wolverine breaks away and then ultimately gets drawn back in when the woman he loves is found by him in a field covered in blood. He can't hear a heartbeat. He freaks out, and then the animal within him that he's trying to restrain comes to the forefront, and he goes on a hunt for whoever's been attacking him and his family, which turns out to be Sabretooth. And Strike has been lying to him since he's stepped back into Wolverine's life and saying he doesn't know who's behind it when it turns out Sabretooth and Striker have been working together to make this happen the entire time. Because Striker has plans to graft adamantium onto Wolverine's skeleton and his bone claws, which are natural as they were in the comics, and turn him into an unstoppable killing machine. He convinces Wolverine to volunteer for the procedure so he can go after Sabretooth, but you know when he says, okay, now wipe out his memories, because he's going to try to reprogram him into a thoughtless soldier, one who just follows orders and does nothing else, Wolverine breaks free and breaks out. So this film was directed by Gavin Hood. This is probably his most high-profile project as a director. He'd been directing things since the short called The Storekeeper in 1998, 
But going through his other films, Tsatsi and Rendition were the two he did before this in 2005 and 2007. Following Wolverine Origins, his best-known work is probably as director of Ender's Game, although he also directed a couple episodes of Breakout Kings and a TV movie called Tough Trade. So I found his style to be good for the visuals. He did have specific looks he wanted and managed to execute a lot of that. I do find that he should have demanded a tighter script for the story. It felt like there were going through the past X-Men films and looking at the characters that they'd wanted to bring in and had not successfully done so and just started putting them in to fill roles. We'll discuss that in the context of the cast who play them. The writing team is one that we haven't discussed a lot before. One member of the team is David Benioff. He's got nine writing credits to his name. His most high-profile project is probably as the screenwriter for The Kite Runner. So he's the one that did that adaptation. He'd already done the screenplay for Troy as his second work back in 2004. Following this film, he did an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and has written several episodes of Game of Thrones. He worked on this along with Skip Woods. Now, Woods has 10 writing credits to his name. Prior to this, he'd written Thursday Swordfish and Hitman, Following this, he wrote The A-Team, A Good Day to Die Hard, and Sabotage. And then his next three projects have not been released yet. Unknown Soldier, Kanan Lynch, and Hitman Agent 47. So Hugh Jackman had already worked with him for Swordfish. Now, Hugh Jackman did return as Wolverine and had some influence over the script. There are certain elements that he wanted. He wanted to make this more of a character piece than the other X-Men films. Apparently, there was constant tension and fighting on the set between the creative team who wanted to do it as a more low-key character piece, and Fox Studios wanted to ramp up the action and special effects for every new installment of the franchise. Now, the X-Men films up to this point have generally had Lauren Schuler Donner as a producer who is also a fan of the X-Men source material, and she's been suggesting a number of specific mutants to use in these. Her husband, Richard Donner, directed the first Superman film and was fired before he finished directing the second one. He was often brought in to mediate disputes between Gavin Hood and his producers and screenwriters, and the studio execs to try and get the film finished. So this may be why a lot of audiences, including myself, find this film ultimately unsatisfying. There are moments in the script that seem to be there just because people want to see the fights and not because it really makes sense from the story perspective. There's some slightly out of character moments. There's a heavy use of CGI, some of which doesn't seem to be quite up to par. It just felt like it was trying to serve two different masters, and as a result, couldn't serve either one well. Now, getting into the cast, Tyler Mayne asked to reprise his role as Sabretooth and show that he could do a little more than grunt on screen, which was the acting that was required of him in the first one. Instead, the studios wanted someone a little bit younger to play the new Sabretooth, or at least that's the one that they used, and they ultimately cast Liev Schreiber, whom Hugh Jackman suggested for the role after working with him previously in Kate and Leopold. Now, Liev Schreiber has a pretty impressive career going back to 1994. The four titles that he's best known for are this, Salt, which came after Wolverine Origins, Scream 3, which came before, Defiance. He also played Iron Man in an episode of Robot Chicken. He's in four episodes of CSI, Crime Scene Investigations, as well as appearing in The Manchurian Candidate, and The Sum of All Fears, and The Hurricane, even playing Orson Welles in RKO 281. On the one hand, bringing in Leif Schreiber brought in a cast member that we knew Hugh Jackman can work with, who was going to bring in a little more respect to dignity to the role and a little more public perception than someone whose acting history was basically wrestling, 
On the other hand, it's hard to argue that they didn't want Tyler Mayne and wanted to bring in Leif Schreiber to bring in a younger actor when he's only a year younger than Tyler Mayne is. In a similar moment of recasting, they brought in Danny Houston as the young William Stryker. Now, the original actor from X-Men 2 wanted to do it using the same technology that they used to de-age Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in X-Men 3, but again, they decided to go with someone younger because it was going to be much cheaper and much easier, which is a decision I agree with for sure. Now, Houston's got 61 acting credits to his name. He is best known for this film, 21 Grams, Children of Men, and The Aviator, although he has been a working actor starting in 1975 and then a delay until leaving Las Vegas in 1995 as bartender number two. The cast also included Will I Am. Most of his IMDb filmography is in the music and composing and soundtrack sections, but he does have acting credits. Now, in some films, he's credited just as a member of the Black Eyed Peas, such as Be Cool and a number of others. He'd already been in Instant Death and done voice work for Madagascar Escape to Africa before doing this one. So this is probably his most prominent acting role. Now, here he plays John Wraith. Wraith does appear in the comics, but it is a different sort of character than the comic one. He came into this as an X-Men fan whose favorite character was Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler had already been represented on the screen quite well by Alan Cummings, so they wanted to do something a little bit different and made him John Wraith. And we also have Kevin Durand, who is Fred J. Dukes. Best known for this, Real Steel, I Am Number 4, and Fruitvale Station, amongst his 65 acting credits. Now, Fred Dukes is one of the characters who had appeared in other scripts for previous X-Men films, but had never made it to screen. Now, Fred J. Dukes is better known as The Blob, who was one of the original X-Men villains. Now, if memory serves, he first appeared in issue number three of the title way back in the 1960s. His power is that if he decides he doesn't want to move, you're not going to move him. He is completely immobile, very strong. He's hard to recognize right away because The Blob is also morbidly obese in the comics, which is how we see him later in the film, but not at the beginning and his size was tied to his power set in the comics. So that's one deviation along with the deviation that the Blob was never a part of the Weapon X project in the comic books. In fact, he was a circus performer who didn't know he was a mutant until Professor X told him, and Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants showed up around the same time, and he would just rather work with Magneto than with the X-Men. So it's not a horrible representation of the character, but it's still far enough that's one of the reasons this movie really rubbed me the wrong way at the beginning. It's not a terribly accurate adaptation of the source material. We also have Dominic Monaghan, who is far better known for his work on Lost and in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in which he played Mary, or Mary Adoc Brandybuck, one of the hobbits. On Lost, he was Charlie Pace. In here, he plays Chris Bradley, aka Bolt, as a character who's got the ability to run things with electricity, and he's the one that ultimately ends up working as a circus performer rather than the blob. Now, Daniel Henney is here as Agent Zero. His best-known credit is for Big Hero 6, where he played Tadashi, but he's also been in The Last Stand and a number of others. So again, he took a, the name of a comic book character that was not terribly well represented, not that it's his fault. As far as I'm concerned, the standout performance is one of the few characters who actually is a part of the Weapon X project. That's Ryan Reynolds as Wade Wilson in this film. That's a very accurate representation of Deadpool in the current comics, known as the Merc with a Mouth, Won't Stop Talking, Tries to Annoy People. Now, Lauren Schuler Donner wanted Deadpool on screen. Ryan Reynolds is one of the few people who was cast in a Marvel project without doing any screen testing. They just essentially said, yes, you are who we want. And I think he does a 
very good job. I'm actually fairly looking forward to the Deadpool film coming out around Valentine's Day in 2016, and that has been in the works since this movie came out in 2009. Now, comic book fans, or the comic book movie fans, may also remember him as Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern film, which will be discussed in more detail at a later time. Now, he has appeared in a number of other projects. His first role was as Billy Simpson in 15. He's been in Ordinary Magic. We will discuss his work in an episode of The X-Files coming up. He was in a few episodes of The Outer Limits, the revamped series. But his breakout role was probably as Michael Bergen in Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place, a.k.a. Berg. He was also in Van Wilder, Blade Trinity, Zero Man, Adventureland, Family Guy, The Proposal, Buried, and Smoke and Aces. Now, outside the Weapon X project, we've got Lynn Collins in here as Kayla Silverfox, a.k.a. Wolverine's love interest. 39 acting credits to her name, including episodes of Covert Affairs and Elementary. She was Deja Thoris in John Carter. She was in 50 First Dates, 13 going on 30. So she's had a, a number of credits to her name. She does a decent job in this one. And from here, we're getting into the characters that really feel grafted on and are ones that really get to me. The first one is Taylor Kitsch. Now, I don't have an issue with Taylor Kitsch as a person. Just to be clear, it's the representation of the characters that they have. So he is best known for his work in John Carter, Lone Survivor, Battleship, and this film. He played Officer Woodra in True Detective for eight episodes. He was in Friday Night Lights. And his acting credits go back to 2006 with 21 credits to his name. In this film, he plays Gambit, who, again was not a part of the Weapon X project in the comics. In the films, he's the one who's escaped their compound, so he's the one that can bring Wolverine back to it, so Wolverine tracks him down. Now, he sees the dog tags on Wolverine and assumes he's part of that project and tries to get away, starts the fight with Wolverine, takes him outside. Wolverine spots Sabretooth, having just killed John Wraith. So while Wolverine and Sabretooth are going at it, and the combo gambit would have slipped away unnoticed and tried to take off, because although he can fight, it's not his preference, He would rather just kind of slip into the background underground and go do his own thing. In this case, the fight between Wolverine and Sabretooth is interrupted when Gambit comes back to attack Wolverine, and Sabretooth is the one that takes off. Wolverine and Gambit do eventually manage to settle their differences. Wolverine convinces Gambit to help him and ends up going to Three Mile Island. So this takes place in the past. It turns out that Three Mile Island wasn't a nuclear disaster. That was the cover story to keep people from looking into what was going on with these Mutants and Strikers project in the X-Men film continuity. So Gambit is there to get him to the island, and then for a little bit of sort of deus ex machina at the end, where he comes in out of nowhere, separates Wolverine and other people attacking him, You know, agrees to help some of these victims and the mutants that are in custody get off the island and come back. Now it's during this big confrontation that we see this version of Deadpool. Now I specifically said Wade Wilson was played by Ryan Reynolds, That's because this version of Deadpool isn't really the Deadpool from the comics. Wade Wilson is an accurate picture of that personality. Deadpool isn't. Here they've sewn his mouth shut and he was played by a different actor because Ryan Reynolds had other commitments in the schedule and wouldn't be back. This Deadpool is more like Mortal Kombat's Baraka with swords coming out of his arms. And he's received powers of a number of mutants. So he's got Wolverine's healing factor. He's got the swords that are based on Wolverine's claws. He's got Cyclops Octoblasts, because this film has a teenage Cyclops, played by Tim Peacock, coming in and having you know his powers manifest and grafted on to Deadpool, even though Cyclops seems to have no memory of William Stryker whatsoever by the time X-Men 2 rolls around. We get a cameo by 
Patrick Stewart or a CGI version of Patrick Stewart as Professor X psychically leading Cyclops and the rest of the prisoners out. And then Scott Atkins plays Deadpool under the makeup because his bone structure is similar enough to Ryan Reynolds to pull it off. He's best known for his work in Born Ultimatum, Undisputed 3 Redemption, The Expendables 2, and Zero Dark Thirty, amongst his 44 acting credits. What he does here is pretty minimal. They call him Weapon 11 as well as Deadpool. He's just there to do the fight. He's got teleportation abilities from John Wraith. He's got a number of abilities that Deadpool hasn't exhibited in the comics. When Deadpool is able to teleport in the comics, it's because of technology, not because of mutant abilities. Deadpool's only mutant ability in the comics is his healing factor. He volunteered for the Weapon X program to get that healing factor to help him with an inoperable tumor that was going to kill him. Now, another character that kind of irritates me amongst those released is Tainatazi playing Emma Frost. Now, they don't call her Frost here. She's just Kayla's sister, Emma. The only character named Frost in this movie is Dr. Carol Frost, the scientist who's experimenting on them. Now, Tana has also appeared in Julia, Dead Space 2, Blue Water High, CSI, CSI New York, and a few other projects with her acting career really starting in 2005. And this Emma Frost is not the version that we will discuss next month as played by January Jones. This is someone who basically has her diamond form and no telepathy. So there are more than enough deviations from the source material that I was incredibly dissatisfied with this. While I still say that this and X3 are the two weakest X-Men films, as it was with X3 The Last Stand, I found that I enjoyed this more on the repeat viewings to do this podcast than I did in the original run. Just getting into a little more of the crew behind it, we've got Harry Gregson Williams as the composer. He did a good enough job. He's best known for his work in at least the first two Shrek films, Kingdom of Heaven and Chronicles of Narnia. He's got 90 composing credits to his name. We've got Donald McAlpine as the cinematographer. He worked with Gavin Hood again in Ender's Game and has worked on a total of 60 films, including Predator, Moulin Rouge, and Chronicles of Narnia. This is one of Nicholas de Toth's 16 editor credits. His debut was in Bicentennial Man. He also worked on Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, Some of All Fears, Underworld Evolution, Live Free or Die Hard, and will be working on Hitman Agent 47 coming up. Similarly, Megan Gill was an editor on this. Now, she doesn't seem to work with Nicholas de to Toth on a regular basis. So I don't know if she was brought in afterwards or if she was brought in first and the other one is brought in afterwards to change some things. She's known for her work on Dead Easy, Sotsi, Spud. This does appear to be her highest profile project. She was in the editorial department but not the proper editor on Ghost in the Darkness in 1996 and that's still one of her four best known roles on the IMDb. So this is a movie that it's probably more satisfying to those who are less familiar with the source material. It is worth noting that it had multiple endings. This continued the the tradition that actually began with Daredevil of having stingers or scenes during or after the credits. But this one actually had multiple post-credit scenes that could be viewed that were randomly distributed to different theaters, all of which are available on the DVD. The most popular one is the one where Deadpool's hand finds his face or his head which goes shh now that its mouth has been reopened, and that was designed to set up the sequel or the Deadpool film, which is finally coming. But there's others where Wolverine goes into a Japanese bar and the like. Now, in terms of the box office and business, this has an estimated budget of $150 million. So using our general rule of thumb, we're looking at a box office domestic take between $300 and $450 million before it's really considered profitable. 
this grossed just under $180 million in the U.S. It was 179 883 157 When you include the international sales, the worldwide gross just made it up to $373 million. So it's possible that this film is profitable today and that it made it there on home video. It's unlikely that it became profitable strictly from the theatrical release. In fact, it was unsatisfying enough, and Hugh Jackman recognized that after the fact, when they realized that they weren't able to make the product they wanted to make, that after doing all the promotional rounds, when they started making The Wolverine, which we will discuss in, in September, he publicly apologized to fans for this film not living up to even his own expectations. So all in all, I'm sure there's people who will find it quite enjoyable. As someone who is fairly familiar with the source material, I can't say that I'm one of them. It's not horrible. We will discuss far worse superhero films. We have discussed far worse superhero films with things like Catwoman and some of the Superman sequels, but there's few that had this budget and were this far along in a franchise that was able to support it before they turned down this road. So that's about all I have to say about X-Men Origins Wolverine. Please join us again next month when we discuss X-Men First Class and the months thereafter as we continue our X-Men coverage with The Wolverine and X-Men Days of Future Past. Thank you for listening.